Good to see you all. If this is your first time here, like Pastor John said, my name is Andrew, and it's a delight to have you in our house this morning. I'm the lead pastor of New Life East, and uh, I'm just grateful to be with you. The Spirit uh, is blowing in this place this morning. I was thinking as we were worshiping, the deepest hunger and thirst of our life is for God, and God is in this place. Can I get an amen from somebody? This morning, so it's good to be with you. I'm in the book of Matthew, chapter 5. This morning, we're making our way through a section of text in the New Testament known as the Sermon on the Mount. Everybody say the Sermon on the Mount. Say, why is it called the Sermon on the Mount? Well, because Jesus delivered it from a mountain. And that's that. But Jesus, there are all of these beautiful places in the New Testament where uh, the call of discipleship, what God intends for us to be, how he intends for us to live, are like compacted and condensed in a way that's really obvious that we can see. It helps us understand. And the Sermon on the Mount is one of those places. Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7. Jesus, his ministry is off to a fast start, has all of these crowds following him. And then he calls his disciples to him and he begins to form them in his ways. And one of the things that I pointed out a couple weeks ago, if you were here, is that there's a big difference. There's all these comparisons that the book of Matthew is going to make between that great figure, that other great figure in the Old Testament who taught from a mountaintop, Moses, and Jesus. Whereas Moses went up on the mountain, and when he came down, he had instructions for the people of God. Jesus goes up on the mountain, and the first thing that he comes down with is not instructions, but it's really a new way of seeing reality. And he does that by virtue of this word, blessed. And so we learn this in the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God. And blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is changing our way of looking at the world because when we look at the world, we think blessing consists of having a lot of money and having a body that works all the time and being on top of the power pile, you know, like we're the most powerful people and everything is just sort of just so. And Jesus says, that's actually not it. The people who are blessed are the people who have thrown themselves into life with me and life might not be perfect, but I'm with them. I've given my own presence to them. So he's teaching us how to see reality. And now as we pick up the text in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 13, what we're going to see is that after teaching us to see in a new way, Jesus now is going to begin to form us into the kind of people that he wants us to be. And so I'm in Matthew chapter 5. I'm going to start in verse 13. If you have it in your Bibles and you're there, say, I'm there. If you have it on your cell phone and you're there, say, I'm there. If you don't want to do any of those things, and you just want to listen, say, I'm willing to listen. Okay, well, that's all of us. That's great. We're doing awesome this morning. Okay, let's, before we open the scriptures together, let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we love you and we trust you. We thank you that as the rain and the snow come from heaven and they don't return to the heavens without watering the earth to make it bud and flourish, so we pray that the word that comes out of your mouth this morning would make our lives rich, that you would teach us to walk with you, that you'd make us flourish. And so we're looking for you in the pages of the text. We're not reading the text of Scripture this morning to try to get more information about God out of it. 
We're opening the scriptures this morning because we trust that the word of God is like fire and like a hammer that breaks the rock into pieces. So we pray that you would hammer away at everything in us that's resistant to you and make us your people again this morning in a deeper way. We pray that you'd baptize us afresh with the Holy Spirit. We pray that we'd walk out of this place this morning have a clear, having a clear sense of our own identity and what your call on our lives is. So grant that, we pray. We say, may the words of the preacher's mouth and the meditation of the hearer's hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our redeemer. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and all God's people said. Matthew 5 and verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, Jesus says. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. And you're the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your light shine before other people that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law of the prophets or to do away with them. I haven't come to do away with them. I've come to fill them up. For truly, I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. That is, until God fulfills his whole will and purpose for the whole cosmos. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord and all God's people said, thanks be to God. I love how Jesus, right from the get-go here, starts shaping our expectations of who we're supposed to be as God's people. And so even though he's gone up on the mountainside and he sees the crowds and he's called a group of disciples to himself, apprentices, learners, he makes it very clear from the very beginning of his teaching that his will is not that as he's called these people together, that they would turn their backs on the world. So it's not as though being part of the church is like, oh my gosh, there's this awful, icky, disgusting world out there, but good thing we have each other. And so we're going to get together on Sundays and we're going to sing happy songs that make us feel good and protected and safe from those evil people out there. That is no part of the will of Jesus for the church. The will of Jesus for the church is that the church lives in a public way in a way that the world can see so that the world through the embodied witness of the church can see what our father in heaven is like. That's what Jesus says. And he gives us these three really beautiful and I think poignant metaphors for thinking about what it means to be God's people living in a corrupted age. First of all, he calls us the salt of the earth. What an odd metaphor. What does it mean for us to be the salt of the earth? Well, I'd say that it's this, that to be the salt of the earth means that we flavor and preserve the world by a show of hands. How many of you like bland food? You don't like bland food because you're a human being. And human beings like salty food, right? Can I get an amen from somebody? Come on, salty food is good food. I made a pot of chili last weekend and I served it to my family. And one of my family members said, this chili is salty. And you know what I said to them? You're welcome. We don't like bland food and I'm not going to serve you bland food. Tasty food is salty food. And so I put the salt in the chili 
And what the salt did is it brought out all the flavors there, you know, the paprika and the cumin and the chili powder and the onions and the peppers and that little bit of red wine that I deglazed the pan with. And then I did this thing last weekend where I put a dash. I'd never done this before. A dash of cinnamon in the chili. <laughs> and you know what the salt did? The salt made all the flavors sing is what it did. And the salt was not the main point of the dish. The salt comes inside the dish and it brings out what's best in the dish. That's the role of the church in the world. That we're not the main storyline of the world, but somehow our presence in the world makes the world a better place, doesn't it? So we flavor it and we also preserve it because that's what salt was used for in the ancient world, wasn't it? They didn't have refrigeration or anything like that. So how did you keep a piece of meat from spoiling? You pack it in salt. And in the same way, because the salt of the church is packed into the world, the world doesn't fall to pieces. Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth. And then he calls us the light of the world. What does it mean for us to be the light of the world? I'd say that what it means is that we illuminate and we warm the world. We illuminate and we warm the world. That the world wouldn't have any idea what to do. Wouldn't know how to tell its right hand from its left hand, up from down. It wouldn't know how to distinguish good and evil. But the church shows up in the world and it says, see, behold, our God is setting before you life and death, blessing and cursing. And then the church says, choose life. This is the way, walk in it. And as the world listens to what the church is saying, it leads to the world's flourishing. And so we illuminate the world, but we don't just illuminate what's going on in the world or how we should live, but we also warm the world by our presence. That as we step into all of the places of society, with our love and our light and our goodness and our mercy and our compassion, we make the world a better place. We warm it with the warmth of the kingdom of God. And so Jesus calls us the salt of the earth. And he says that we're the light of the world. And then he also calls us the city set on a hill, which I think means that we provide shelter and protection for the world. That in the same way that in the ancient world, if you were traveling, you'd be vulnerable and exposed out there on all the roads. But if you saw a city, you knew that inside the city, you'd be safe and provided for and cared for. That's the church, that the lights of the church are always on and the doors of the church are always open. And when people come into our midst, what happens is they taste and see that the Lord is good. They experience something of the presence of God and it undoes them. Think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. He actually presumes that there will always be folks in our midst who have not yet said yes to Jesus. And he says, if one of those people is in your midst, and they see you all praying and prophesying, will they not be convicted by all that they're a sinner and the presence of God will fall on them and they'll fall down on their knees and worship God saying, God is really among you, that they see the face of our Father in heaven and they give their lives over to God. And so we're the salt of the earth and we're the light of the world and we're the city set on a hill. We provide all of this for the world. We're part of how the world sees what God is like, but how? Does it see what God is like? And this is what Jesus says, that it's not just that we kind of sort of do it haphazardly or automatically, but something comes out of us that shows the world just how salty and full of light and full of protection and shelter we are. In the same way, Jesus says, let your light shine before others that they may see your, what does the text say? Your good deeds. So it's something that's coming out of us and glorify your father in heaven. And then in verse 20, Jesus says that I tell you, unless your righteousness, what's the word there? Holy smoke surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. What? 
the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. These are like the professional religionists of Jesus' day. Nobody did more or tried harder than these people. These people like did it for a living. And Jesus is saying that unless your righteousness, what's the word again? Surpasses, like goes far beyond that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You'll certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. How can he say that? What does he mean? That's what I want to explain to you this morning. But I want to ask you a question. It's a way of getting at an answer. Have you ever been in the presence of somebody who was deeply and genuinely good? Like a good, good person. And I'm talking about somebody that you're like, oh yeah, she's a good hang, you know? Or, uh, you know, that guy, he's a fine chap, you know, as they say across the pond over there. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kind of person that when you're in their presence, that there is something like radiant about their life and the goodness has like a weightiness to it. You ever met people like this? Think about many years ago. I met so many people like this in my years in the church. But I think about many years ago, getting to meet the great Eugene Peterson for the first time, only time in my life, actually. And Eugene was a hero of mine. Some of you will know the name Eugene Peterson. He's the author of the message version of the Bible. It's sold millions and millions of copies, gone around the world. Authored like 50 or so books, something crazy like that. And Eugene had such a profound and formative influence on me as a young pastor. I read so many of his books and I had the chance to go and meet him. And I remember preparing for that meeting with Eugene Peterson and I was just as nervous as a cat, you know. Cats are always kind of nervous. I've got a cat. It's okay. Settle down. I was nervous as a cat, man. Heading into that meeting with Eugene. What's it going to be like? And what am I going to say? So in my head about it, you know. And I'll never forget going, up, forget going up to the Peterson's door and knocking on the door. And they opened it to us. And Jan, his wife, greeted us. And then Eugene was standing there. And Jan, Jan doesn't know me from Adam. But she brought me in and she gave me this hug. And then Eugene grabbed my hand and shook it. And he looked in my eyes. And he said, I'm so glad to have you here. And I just remember feeling like when I'm in the presence of the Petersons, I'm in the presence of God in a way that's as profound as any worship service I've ever been in. And I, I remember sitting with Eugene and talking with Eugene and he was like interested in me, asking me questions about my life and hearing about my pastoral ministry. And his eyes were like transfixed on Andrew Arndt as though Andrew Arndt were the most important person he had ever met. And I wasn't. Eugene Peterson was friends with Bono. He's got cool friends. And a dorky kid from Wisconsin is sitting in front of him and he made me feel so dignified and so valuable. And I left my time with Eugene feeling like my life had been put back together again in ways that I hadn't even been asking for. You ever been in the presence of people like this? I remember when Mandy and I were pastors in Denver many years ago, came into a season where we just needed some outside counsel and help. And we got introduced to this uh, couple, Colin and Diane Campbell, still friends with them. And we got to know the Campbells and the Campbells began to draw out our story and listen to us. And I just remember their discernment and their wisdom and their love. And the scripture says that the purposes of a person's heart are like deep waters, but a person of understanding can draw them out. And the Campbells were like that for us. Every time we'd go in, some kind of confusion and We'd sit down in front of the Campbells and they'd draw the deep purposes out of our hearts and lay them before the Lord. And we always came out of meetings with the Campbells better off than when we went in. And I think about this community. I've been here for five and a half years, but I can think of people that are sitting in this room that every time I'm with you, 
I feel like I'm in the presence of God every time I'm with you. I feel like my life gets put back together. Friends, what is the name that the Bible ascribes to that quality on a person's life? What do we call that thing? Can I answer the question for you? We call it holiness. And you know it when you're in the presence of it because it doesn't shame you and it doesn't crush you, but it sanctifies you and preserves you and makes you better. And do you know that it is the will of God for every human being that we should be those kinds of persons for other people. Think about what Jesus says at the end of Matthew chapter five. Jesus says, be perfect, therefore, as who? Your heavenly father is perfect. What is the will of God for us? It is that we'd look like our father in heaven. And Jesus isn't saying this as a way of kind of confusing us, nor is he just saying this to a few people. C.S. Lewis puts it so beautifully where he says that the command, be ye perfect, is not idealistic gas, nor is it a command to do the impossible, but he's going to make us creatures into, that, into creatures that can obey that command. If we let him, he will make the feeblest and the filthiest of us, every single person. He can make us into a god or a goddess, a dazzling radiant, immortal creature, creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine a bright stainless mirror, which reflects back to God perfectly his own boundless power and delight and goodness. The process will be long and in parts very painful, but that is what we are in for. Nothing less. He meant what he said. What is God trying to do in your life? What is God trying to do in my life? He's trying to take his own nature and incarnate it in us so that we look like our father in heaven. So that when people are in our presence, their lives get better. They know that they're in the presence of genuine goodness. The question is, how do we get there? How do we become those kinds of people? And Jesus gets at an answer to that question by setting up a contrast here in this text with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Remember, he says that unless your righteousness, what's the word again? surpasses, goes far beyond the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You certainly not enter into whatever it is God is doing on planet earth. What was the problem with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? Was it that they were trying too hard? You know, you just need to relax a little bit, guys. Was it that they were giving themselves, you know, giving too much energy to the life of holiness? Was that it? No, it wasn't it. The problem with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law was this, Matthew chapter 23 and verse five. Jesus says, that everything they do is done for what? Everything they do is done for people to see. All they're doing is managing their image before other people. And it might be a lot of effort and it might be a lot of stress and strain and striving and all of that. But all they're doing is managing the surface appearance of their lives. Jesus goes on to say this to the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. Woe to you, you hypocrites. You give a tenth of your spices, your mint, your deal and dill and your cumin, but you've neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. He says, you should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. You blind guides, he says, you strain out a gnat, but swallow a camel. I have no idea what that means, but it sounds terrible. What's he saying? 
You go into your cupboard and you're tithing off of your mint and your dill and your cumin, but you've neglected the deep call of justice and mercy and faithfulness. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're full of greed and self-indulgence, blind Pharisee. First clean what? And then what? See, I can take a washcloth and I can clean the outside of a cup, right? And the inside is dirty, but how do you clean? How do you clean the inside? You submerge it. And Jesus is saying that if you'll submerge yourselves in God, not only will the inside come clean, but the outside will be clean just as a matter of course, because it got dunked in God. So first clean, he says, the inside of the cup and the dish, then the outside will be clean. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside, you're full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. What was the problem with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law? They never let God in. God was a matter of managing the externals. Everything they do, Jesus said, it's done for other people to see. You didn't let God in the interiority. You didn't let God into the depths in that place where your own motives and your loves and your passions and your desires, where all of that lives, which guides your life. You never actually let God get in there. The writer of Proverbs says it so beautifully. Proverbs 4 and verse 23, keep thy what? With all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Keep thy, keep, why keep thy heart with all diligence? The writer of Proverbs says, because out of it are the issues of life. Jesus knows what the writer of Proverbs knows, what the whole scripture knows, that when the heart is right, the life goes right. And when the heart is wrong, what happens to the life? The life goes wrong. Everything important in our lives hangs upon the condition of our hearts. And if God can get a hold of our hearts, he's got a hold of our lives. But if he doesn't have a hold of our hearts, then nothing that we do trying to manage in the religious sphere will make any difference whatsoever. You got to open your heart to the Lord. Mandy and I have some friends that we've known for a long time, several years ago, married couple, been married for about 20 years or so. And several years ago, this couple went through a really difficult season. They said some things that they shouldn't have said. They did some things, each one of them, that they shouldn't have done, both of them, bearing equal uh, responsibility for what happened in their marriage. And here we are sitting with them a few years later. We've been walking with them, trying to help them move to a place of health and restoration. And one of them in the marriage is saying, I'm so sorry for what I did. I take responsibility for what I did. I want you, I want our family, I want God in our family, and I wanna make this work. It's an open heart. And the other one is saying, I can't forgive what happened. I don't wanna let it go. I'm not really sure if I want you anymore, and I think I want another life. One heart is open, one heart is closed, and the marriage is on the brink of calamity. And so the writer of Proverbs says, keep thy, say it church, 
Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And I'm saying this, I'm using that illustration intentionally because I know of so many marriages that are in trouble. Mandy and I are going on 23 years of marriage. And I know this in a way that I didn't know it at the beginning of our marriage, that the reason that marriages collapse are simply because of this. And Jesus actually says that. He says, you know, the whole reason that marriages fall apart, this is Matthew chapter 19, you can look it up. He says, it's because of the hardness of your hearts. It's not infidelity. It's not gambling. It's not pornography addictions. It's not some personal habits, you know, that I wish you would clean up. It's not any of that stuff. Jesus says that the reason that marriages fall apart are because of the hardness of our hearts. But I've got news for you, friends. The reason that everything in our life falls apart is because of the hardness of our hearts. Relationships between husbands and wives, parents and kids, friends. The reason that businesses go sideways and churches go off the rails is because people weren't paying attention to their hearts. It's the whole thing. The whole promise of the new covenant, what Jesus comes to bring us is precisely this. It's renewed hearts and renewed spirits. The prophet Ezekiel says it so beautifully. The Lord says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of, and I will give you a heart of flesh. What's a heart of stone, friends? A heart of stone is a heart that can't feel anymore. A heart of stone is a heart that's invulnerable to other people. A heart of stone is a heart that's a dead heart. It can't move blood. It can't deliver life. And Jesus says, that I am the Lord who comes to remove from you that heart of stone and give you what? A fleshy heart. And if we can have fleshy hearts, we stand a chance of becoming the kind of people who can produce for God the surpassing righteousness that he's looking for. That once grace waters the soil of our hearts, then all of a sudden good works, the kind of works that testify to our Father in heaven, they start springing out of us. The question here, and I'm going to end with this, is how do we maintain a soft heart? How do we keep a fleshy heart? Three things for you. Number one, we keep a soft heart by cultivating a life of prayer. Everybody say prayer. We do it by cultivating a life of prayer. I've been a Christian all my life. I've been a pastor for going on 20 years. And I remember at the beginning of my pastoral ministry thinking about how people change and spiritual formation and how do we create the kind of people that produce what God requires. I had all of these cool little tricks and gadgets for spiritual formation that I would give people. Oh, you got to read this little book over here and you got to try this practice. And I learned of this thing in the, third, the 13th century from this obscure saint and you need to give this a try and all of that. And you know, I'm more convinced of now than ever is that the life of personal holiness really boils down to this thing. Are we prayerful people? Because you know what prayer is? Prayer is the opening up of our hearts before the Lord who says, I'm the Lord who heals you. And what we're doing is we're opening up the interior lives of our own person to God. And we're asking God to come in and to create in us the clean heart again. And I think that the reason that some of us don't have prayer lives, honestly, is because we think that prayer is like this religious obligation that we do for God's sake. You know what I mean? Like God is up there in heaven going, okay, now one of the things that you need to do that makes me really happy with you is you need to pray. 
And it's like God's kind of way of, you know, like God is a little bit narcissistic up there and he's kind of lonely, you know, and we kind of have this image of God like that, I think. That God's like, you know, I created everything and I redeemed you people and I just wish that those people down there would just talk to me more. And so then we have this idea of prayer that we're praying for God's sake. We don't pray for God's sake. Whose sake do we pray for? Our own sakes. We know the condition of our hearts. We know what greed is in us and we know what lust is in us and we know what anger is in us and what bitterness is in us and what unforgiveness is in us. And so we don't come into prayer trying to get God off our backs with words. We come into prayer going, create in me a clean heart, oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit in me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. That's what we do in prayer. So we're asking God to come in. We had this song that we sang in church when I was growing up, into my heart, into my heart. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. Come in today. Some of you might know it. Come in to stay. Come into my heart, Lord Jesus. And we always position that song as like a salvation song. Will you open your heart to Jesus? Just this one. And I've come to realize that that's not a salvation song. That's a survival song. That's a survival song. And we know that we're not going to make it apart from the grace of God. And so we pray. And you say, Andrew, I don't know how to pray. I've got awesome news for you. Nobody knows how to pray. We're trying to talk to an invisible, immortal, all-powerful deity of the universe using human language. How, how does that work? How do we pray? I'll tell you how we pray. This is the best that you're ever going to discover about prayer is what you do is you take those scriptures and you open them to the Psalms and you begin to read those Psalms in a way that's open-hearted before the Lord. And what you find is that as you read the text of scripture, you're not reading it to gather more information about God, but you're reading the text of scripture and you're discovering that as you read the text of scripture, God is reading you. And all of a sudden, all of those motivations of the heart start waking up, anger and greed and lust, the desire for power, bitterness and unforgiveness. And do you know what you do? Here's how you're gonna pray. That when those things begin to pop up before the Lord, you just tell the truth about them to God. Here it is, oh God. Heal it, cleanse it, take it away. And I promise you that if you do that, he will, and you'll live into the soft heart. And so we cultivate a life of prayer, number one. Number two, we learn to welcome. Church, I want, to, I want you to say that word real loud. Isn't that a terrible word? You know, when I was writing this sermon and I'm writing up these points here, I was tempted to make this point, point number two, something like learn to cultivate community, you know? And then, you know, what I realized while I was writing up this message that all of us have community. And it's very few of us that our community is actually making a difference in our lives. And you know why that is? Because a lot of us are building community in a way that's fundamentally narcissistic. What we're doing is we're just kind of like assembling a group of friends that will tell us all of the best things about ourselves and just confirm for me that I really am a wonderful person and gosh darn it, people like me. It's an echo chamber. You know who wise persons are? Wise people are people that have community 
where those folks can tell them the God's honest truth about themselves and they don't flinch from it and they don't run away from it, but they lean into it. The writer of Proverbs says that the one who loves discipline, loves knowledge, but the one who hates correction, you know what they are? They're stupid, that's what they are. (laughs) Do you have people in your life who can tell you the truth and it's not easy? Man, somebody calls you on your stuff. Oh, it wounds you. And you have a choice to make right there. Do I back out of it or do I lean into it? And as you lean into it, you know what happens? The heart becomes soft. It's moldable again. God can get what God wants. And so we cultivate a life of prayer and we learn to welcome, what's the word again? It's a terrible, awful word, but it's crucial for our survival. And then number three, and with this, I'm gonna invite you to stay in church. We stay faithful in worship. Let's stand to our feet. Our feet? Well, the preacher's almost out of gas. He's saying feet. Stay on your feet this morning. We're, we're staying faithful in worship. We don't come into worship to entertain God or amuse God, nor do we come into worship to be entertained by the worship team and the preacher. We come into worship because together with the people of God, when we open our hearts to God, God changes us. And so church, I wanna invite you now to take your heart and hold it in your hands before the Lord. Your wayward heart, your bitter heart, your angry heart, your vengeful heart. Maybe this morning you've got a dead heart. Maybe the deadness of that heart is because of things that you've done and how you've managed it. Maybe the deadness of your heart this morning is because of things that were done to you and you just feel crushed. I don't know where you find yourself this morning. The cry of the church is always the same. Create in me a clean heart. Would you say that, church, in your own way and in your own words? Create in me a clean heart. We're saying, oh God, renew steadfast spirits in us where our hearts have grown dead. We say, make them alive again. Where our hearts have grown hard, we say, soften them again. Where our hearts are wandering away from you, where things have caught our attention that have nothing to do with you and your kingdom, we say, correct our hearts, O God, and bring us again to that joyful submission to your will that makes us salt of the earth and the light of the world in a city set on a hill. And we know that we can't do this without you. The way that this happens is by welcoming you into our lives. And so, Jesus, we remember you this morning as we're gathered together as your people. We remember that on the night that you were betrayed, after you'd given thanks, you took the bread and you broke it and you gave it. And you said, this is my body broken for you. Do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the supper, you took the cup and you said, drink all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's poured out for many for the remission of sins. But more than that, it'll change your hearts. Do this whenever you drink in remembrance of me. And so Jesus, as we come forward to the table this morning, we're asking that you would take these elements, bread and cup. We pray that you would lift them up in your presence, bless them, break them, give them to us and make them the advent of the kingdom of God in our hearts this morning. Grant that we're praying in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, Amen. I'm going to invite our servers to come forward to serve communion this morning. Ushers will dismiss you row by row. You're going to come down front and the servers will hand you your communion elements. Take it back to your seat, but don't take it yet. In just a few moments, we're singing this song of worship in response. And then Pastor Eddie is going to lead us to the table. Brothers and sisters, these are the gifts of God given for the people of God. Come forward and receive communion.